You may be seated this morning. If you have your Bibles, you may want to start flipping over to Acts chapter number 17. We're in our, our vision month where we've been talking about, you know, how do we, as a church, what are we supposed to do? What are we, what is God calling us to and what is our mandate as a church and, and where do we go and where do we point to in, in these times, you know, that we live in? And in the first week we talked about each and every one of us having a, a personal responsibility to surrender to the will of God in our lives and to see God's will and his vision for who you are. In other words, who God created you to be, and for you to be everything and to be released in who God created you to be. Because he created each and every one of us unique, some of us more unique than others. If you're not chuckling, you're the unique one. You know the drill by now. But he created us all unique, us all individual, us all, so that, that we could be something particular a particular piece, right, in his kingdom and what he wants to do. So we talked that first week about our personal responsibility. And then we talked about embracing the community, that it's not our job as a church to just be in the community, but we have to be a part of the community. We have to be about seeing need and meeting needs, whether those are physical, emotional, spiritual. The needs that surround us are great, and they are many, and it's our mandate, according to the gospel, to help meet the needs of the people that we are called to serve. And we talked last week about loving people and how we have to love even the people that we don't want to love, the ones that are hard for us to love, our, loving our enemies, loving our neighbor as ourself, and kind of putting away that selfish drive that we all have as humans, and to be able to trade that for what Jesus teaches us to do, and that's to love everyone equally and to begin to respect the opinions of others so that we can engage the conversation. And yes, that even means in the middle of an election to respect the opinions of everybody, no matter what animal they may or may not have in their yard. This week, we're going to talk about culture and how do we engage the culture around us and change the culture around us to be more efficient, if you would, this morning. You know, if you've ever traveled overseas, <laughs> you can run into some cultural issues really quick when you step off the plane in another country. Um, they're, they're vast, from, you know, where you stand in line, to how this works, to how that works, to what things that may not be offensive in, in your language that you use, and they're extremely offensive in another language, um, or even in English, in the same language, just in another place. It's amazing the differences that can exist uh, as you leave your comfort zone of your culture. And many of you know, I lived in Australia for a while. And um, Australian culture is, is, is very unique, um, indeed. Australian people are, are very unique. But one thing that Americans do all the time in Australia, and after I lived there for a while, it used to be like one of those things that you're like, wait for it, it's going to happen. Just wait. And that's this. If you were saying like, oh, I'd like to have two Cokes, or maybe I want two bags of chips, or something like that, 99% of people in America will do this. They'll go, two. I want two Cokes, right? Now, in Australia, this is like the most offensive thing that you can gesture with your hands, is to say number two. This gesture in Australia closely resembles another gesture that we have in this country that maybe you've encountered while driving. <laughs> maybe someone came around you and, 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 and on the road and they greeted you with a number one. If you follow me this morning, right? It means the same thing in Australia if your fingers are facing out. They call it the forks. You give someone the forks, right? So, so many Americans will go in there and be like, oh, I have two. And everyone in Australia is like, you know, why are you doing that? But we don't mean that. But there's a cultural difference. So if you ever travel to Australia, you want to make sure your palm is out if you say two, right? Make sure the palm is out or do this, <laughs> This is way safer <laughs> if you just do two this way. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it or use your thumb and your forefinger, right? 
But there's cultural differences everywhere that we go. So I want to share a couple of other funny uh, things that were meant to go one way, um, but it went a different way because of culture. Uh, when Kentucky Fried Chicken decided to expand globally its enterprises and they went under China, everyone knows their slogan, it's what? It's finger licking good, right? And that means something specifically to our culture here that means, you know, when you get something really good, you just want to get every last bit, you know. Like my kids, when they eat Doritos and they have those orange fingers, you know what I'm talking about? And then they're sitting there and they're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. That's what Kentucky Fried Chicken slogan means. But when they got into the Chinese market, they discovered that their slogan in Chinese with the equivalent meant, eat your fingers off. What? <laughs> I don't know whose kid that is. <laughs> eat your fingers off. It's a far different cry than it's finger looking good to the Chinese. Um, Coke also, when Coca-Cola went into China, they had some issues trying to find a Chinese equivalent for their name to, for it to sound the same and to bring the, the same message. Well, when Pepsi entered um, China, their slogan was, Pepsi brings you back to life. Yep. Uh-oh. In Chinese, what they said was, Pepsi will bring your ancestors back to life. Now, if you know anything about Chinese culture, the Chinese people are very big on their ancestral heritage, right? Their ancestors watch over them like guardian angels. So as a product like Pepsi, you make a pretty bold statement when you say not only is Pepsi a great drink, but it will bring your dead family members back to life in a culture that worships dead family members. This is a pretty bold statement to make. Not what they wanted. But it's not just in Asian markets that this happens, right? Also, everybody heard of Schweppes, the company Schweppes. They make ginger ale and they make tonic water, right? Well, when Schweppes launched their their big campaign in Italy, Schweppes tonic water, just the title, in in Italian wound up saying Schweppes toilet water. (laughs) Now, I'm not a big fan of tonic water, so I might agree, you know, with that. But see how culturally things can become a little bit different innocently? My favorite is, uh, is GM. GM decided they were going to increase their South American market, right? So they sent a bunch of Chevy Novas down to South America to try to sell. And they could not figure out why they could not sell a car in South America. Well, little did they know that in Spanish, the word Nova means doesn't go. So they're actually trying to sell a car to Spanish-speaking people. They go, Chevy, it doesn't go. You're not likely to buy that vehicle. So they had to pry all of the Nova tags off and put new, uh, a new name for the car. And my personal favorite is an American t-shirt maker in Miami got the great idea that when the Pope came to town that he was gonna, he was gonna make a great profit off the Pope's visit. So he had all these t-shirts made up to sell to all the people around the Pope. Now Spanish can be a very difficult language because one tiny letter completely changes the whole outcome. So what he wanted to say was, was had a shirt that would say, I saw the Pope or El Papa, the Father, right? The Holy Father, El Papa. But instead, he wrote El Papa, which means I saw the potato. <laughs> so you're in Miami, a heavily Spanish, you know, influenced society, and you're trying to sell t-shirts about the Pope, and you wind up with a t-shirt that says, I saw the potato, he probably still did okay, just based on the hilariousness of the shirt. Um, but you can see how culture, sometimes our best intentions don't translate with the things that we're trying to say, because we're all coming from a different perspective. We're all coming from a different background. And we see this happen time and time again in, in Scripture, but used in a very positive way. So Acts chapter number 17 this morning, it's kind of set up the story. So Paul is in Athens which is in Greece. And Athens is a place where they're very intellectual people. Um, and the, the Athenians had, had begun to, to lay aside their old culture of the Greek gods, the Greek mythology, you know, Zeus and Hercules and, and all of those stories um, that surrounded that. They had begun to, to lay that aside. 
and they had begun to think about things more intellectually, and they were starting to have conversations about who God was and why they were here. And so they built all these, they used all the old uh, temples and everything to have these conversations with these uh, very learned people. So Paul is in Athens and he's waiting. When we pick up the story here in Acts chapter number 17, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Even some of the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now on the screen, he talks about, he says he seems to be a preacher. He's bringing this foreign ideology, and they call him a babbler. So what Paul is actually, is actually doing is he's engaging the people in Athens. He starts with the Jews in the synagogue, somewhere he has some commonality, and he begins to investigate what is happening and the, what the climate is like in Athens because he sees some things that are conflicting. And so they say, what does this babbler want to say? You know, what does he have to say, this, this foreign preacher, right? And, and this, you got to understand, like, the, the way they're saying this is very arrogant. They're coming at this like, what is this guy going to say to us? After all, we are the Stoic philosophers of Athens, right? So Paul, in verse 22, it says, is standing in the midst of of the Areopagus, right? And now the Areopagus is this place where all of these philosophers and, and all these smart people gather uh, to talk about things that are happening. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath and everything. So what Paul actually does here in, in the scripture is, you see that Paul is, he's learned some things about the culture in Athens. And so he says, I see that, 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 you, that you're religious. I see that you have some sort of a religion because look at all these idols. Look at all these temples. And in fact, at that time, the Athenians, they had built this, this, this kind of massive idol to the god of knowledge, right, that they had no name for. They had no sort of system in place yet uh, or religion. It was the quest to answer the question, who is this God that we think might be out there? And so it was just this gigantic question mark. So Paul figures out what's happening in the culture and where things are pointed and where they're headed, and he sees an opening to use that knowledge to, to sort of bring their, their, their place of commonality um, for everyone. So he first identifies with their belief structure. And he uses some of what they believe in order to bring their beliefs home to the gospel to show it as truth. So Paul finds a space within their culture to proclaim the gospel and uses this as a bridge to share Jesus. You know, a lot of people say that, you know, oh, we're supposed to be separated. Oh, we're supposed to be, we're holy, you know, and it's our holiness. And so therefore we have to be separated. But the thing that we forget about that is, is holiness is about separation from sin, not separation from sinners. And a lot of times we, we use that, you know, holiness. Well, I have, to, I have to make sure that, you know, I don't, I'm not stained by this, you know, this sinful nature. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Except in the, and you see in the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees existed, that they didn't want to be tainted by the common people or by the people who were lesser than them. But we see that we got to remember that holiness is about our personal responsibility. It's how we try to live our life in a way that we follow the commandments and we follow the life that Jesus Christ has called us to live the best we can, understanding that at the end of the day, you're still what? A sinner. A lot of times after we, we get, we're in church for a while, we want to suddenly think of ourselves as innocent. You know, oh, I'm innocent. You know, I, I'm doing all this now. I'm, I'm innocent. No, you have to understand that you're still guilty. 
You are guilty of everything that you've done. The Bible says so, that you are guilty. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you are still guilty. The only difference is, is that through what Jesus Christ did for us, is he says you are pardoned from your guilt. He doesn't proclaim your innocence. You're still guilty. So we have to remember that holiness is not separation from the sinner. It's our own separation from our own sin. So as we look at what Paul does in these couple chapters that we're going to kind of run through, is we see a pattern or a theme of what he does to address culture and use culture as a, as a way to bridge a gap into the gospel. The first thing is we see Paul acknowledges, or acknowledges rather, their spiritual questions. He understands that their society is asking a very big question and they don't know where they're going to land yet. And so he acknowledges this and understands this um, in Acts 17. But he also um, does the same thing in Acts 13. Now in Acts 13, he's talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. It's a different culture. It's a different perspective. They're coming from a different place. And the way Paul starts off his talk in chapter 13 is very different than the way that he talks in chapter 17 because he's talking to two different cultures. Now what's interesting is is the place that Paul winds up at the end of both of these. He winds up at the cross and with the gospel-saving message of Jesus Christ every time. The culture, though, is the bridge that brings us to a place of, of commonality. We see also in Acts chapter 14, Paul's in Lystra, and he starts speaking about seasons. And he talks about the seasons. Now, as we read that, we think he's just using colorful metaphors or maybe he's just using this as an analogy. But in reality, what he's doing is, in Lystra, the seasons were very closely tied to their religious beliefs. And so Paul uses this as a bridge and begins to speak something that they very much understand. And they're like, okay, yeah, he's talking about this. Then he takes something that their culture relates to and he brings it home back to the gospel and uses it as a bridge to get people back to the gospel. The how of ministries in some way is determined by the who, the when, and the where of the people that we're ministering to. And we have to understand the actual questions that people are asking. And like, I believe that our society today is kind of like Athens at the time when Paul is talking in Acts 17. That our, our society is asking a lot of questions right now. What is a lot of things? Our society wants to know, well, what is gender? Is gender an idea or is gender a science? Is gender biology or is it an idea? Is sexuality, is that a science or is that an idea? Which way is it? Is this something that should be, should be um, sort of controlled and understood by religion? Or is this something that's up to each and every individual? What do we really believe about God? And how do we put that in perspective? And, and how do we say, oh, well, this, these guys say this and these people say this and this group says that and this group says that. How do we take all of that and how do we as a society figure out where we're going to land what do we believe god is is god science is god god and these are the types of questions that our society is trying to figure out today and to be honest we don't have any answers as a society but we the church do have a lot of answers but the problem is that we have to actually understand the questions that are being asked first peter chapter three says this but in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what Paul's saying here is, is always be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer to the questions that people have. And you notice though that he says, of anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But if you're going to be in Christ Jesus, then you have to have what? Oh, that was so weak. I set you guys up so well for that. This was an easy home run. It was an underhanded pitch. Try it again. So if we're going to do that, we first have to have what? There we go. Now you guys are with me. Hope. You can't walk around dejected and hopeless in Christ Jesus and expect to live in Christ Jesus because it doesn't work. 
We have a hope, but we also have to live our lives in a way that people understand that you have a hope they can ask about. Now, the end of this is important too. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, in last week we talked a lot about respect. We talked about respecting other people's opinions and listening to where people are rather than arguing about it, listen to it. And it would be amazing if we would just stop and respect one another's positions, how much further the conversation would actually go if we were willing to do so. So the second thing is Paul understood the culture of Athens, Lystra, and Jerusalem. Just in these couple of chapters, we see three different cultures that Paul understands very well. And he uses a piece of their culture in his message to bring it as a bridge to bring people back to the hope of Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things in every culture that we can do. Now, we also have to understand this. Number one, we cannot preach against culture. We can't. Because, and I believe the church has done this for so long, that we try to preach against culture, which is just a symptom of a greater problem, right? It's addressing just something that we want to see different. It's almost like, we, you know, oh, as everything's like this, it's fine. And so we've, we've used this, this preaching at culture rather than preaching at the source, which is people's lives and how people react and how they live in a life that's full of the love and mercy and hope of Jesus Christ. But we want to preach at the culture, which is really just a symptom rather than addressing the actual problem. So we don't preach against culture. We use culture as a way to bring people to the gospel. And when people's lives are changed, guess what else changes? Culture. There's three parts of every culture that we have to be aware of. Number one, the parts of the culture that we adopt. The parts that we can take and go, okay, this works. There's the parts of the culture that we adapt. And then there's the parts of the culture that we reject. And the parts of the culture that we reject is where we use the standard and the authority of God's word as our, as our measuring tool. And we say, this is a place that we don't compromise. This is a place where culture, this part is rejected because it's in, it's in complete defiance to the knowledge of God. Now, what's a great example of adopting and then adapting culture? How many of you celebrate Christmas? Raise your hand. Congratulations. You have adapted and adopted a piece of another culture that you didn't even know. How many of you know that Jesus was not born on December 24th or 25th? That Mary did not go into labor on Christmas Eve, right? He was probably born in the spring. So why do we celebrate Christmas in the middle of winter in December? A pagan festival called the Winter Solstice. The early church had to combat a lot of these things in, in culture. So what they did was they took a pagan holiday that everyone celebrated. And they said, okay, people are still going to celebrate this. This is a part of culture. People have done this their whole lives. This is going to be a hard thing for them to break so what did the church do? They adopted it. And they said, it's Jesus' birthday. We're going to celebrate it today. And then they took all of the elements that combined in that holiday, like the Christmas tree, the lights, all of that thing. And then they took what their original symbolic meaning was to the pagan holiday. And then they transferred or adapted those things and those symbols to represent Christianity and to represent what Jesus came to do. And that's the very reason... That we celebrate Christmas when we do. Easter is also the pagan holiday Ishtar. That's where we get the name Easter from. And those things were all adopted and adapted by the early church to use aspects of, uh, of the culture that they lived in to adapt them and to change. And what's amazing is no, hardly anybody across the world has any idea what the pagan holiday of the winter solstice is, other than it's a celestial event and people know, oh, the winter solstice is coming up. But they have no idea that it used to be Christmas. And yet we took it and adopted it, and now Christmas is, is synonymous, not only in its name, but in, and there's, I mean, look at all the, the controversy we have right now. People know you can't say Merry Christmas anymore because it means Jesus. You've got to say Happy Holidays, Right? 
So that's how much that piece of culture was adopted and adapted from someplace else that the church used to bring people home to the gospel. So we adopt, we adapt, and we reject. Jude chapter number one uh, begins in verse three. It says this, uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. All right, so I want to stop right there for a second. To contend for the faith. And what that means is to fight for what you believe in, to be willing to fight for the faith, right? And he goes on to talk about its appeal. Um, and he talks about for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling them to fight, to keep these things out, to contend for the faith or to fight for the faith, to understand that there are times that we have to reject and we have to fight for what we believe in. But then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, we see this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means, or remember as we talked about last week, whatever it takes, by all means, that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So you see, we have two different things here. We have one scripture that's telling us to contend or to fight, and then we have Another scripture here where Paul is telling us basically to contextualize the gospel. So which is it? It's both. There has to be balance. Balance. And the karate kid, for those of you who were around in those days, not the one with the Jaden Smith kid, the old one with Ralph Macchio. You know what I'm talking about, all my 80s folks in here, right? Mr. Miyagi has a famous line. It's one of my favorite lines in that movie. And he says this, balance in everything, Danielson. Balance. And balance in our lives are true in so many aspects. And in the church, our responsibility of contending and contextualizing, that balance is also very, very, very important. Now, there's some people that all they want to do is contend. They just want to contend. They want to fight. And they're like, oh, you got to look like this. You got to have your hair cut like this. You got to sing this kind of song. You have to stand like this in church. You sit, you do, you do. There's all these, and they're contending, right, for all of these things. And then there's other people that all they want to do is contextualize. And they're like, oh, you know, we just want to be more tolerant. We don't want to offend anyone. And, you know, we just want to, you know, just kind of let people, you know, do whatever's right for them. The Bible doesn't say that either, right? So we have to learn that there's a time that we contend, and then there's a time that we contextualize. Like, we can change the style of music that we sing, you know, it, it, depending on where we are and, and who we're reaching. We can change the way we dress, we can change the style of clothes that we wear, but the point is that the message is unchanging. We can change some of the verbiage that we might use to convey the gospel, but the gospel itself does not change. And we have to remember that we do not own the gospel, so therefore we cannot change it. The third thing that Paul does is he acknowledges the positives and the negative aspects of each and every one of these cultures. You know, he says, I see that you're questioning and, I, and you have this statue to this unknown God and I understand the questions that you're asking and they're good questions, but you're wrong. <laughs> and here's where you're right. So he contextualizes part of it to understand and identify with where they are, but he also contends to say that this is what the gospel teaches us. We have to learn the culture, not so we can embrace it to be trendy, but that we can better reconcile culture to the gospel. Paul proclaims to them, he, he actually quotes a poet in his speech. 
In Athens, it'd be the same thing as us, you know, like we used Bruce Almighty a few weeks ago. We use things in culture, things that people know to sort of bring home uh, a, a point. And that's what Paul does. And later in that same speech, though, after he affirms part of their culture, he says that they're ignorant. And we have to remember that the world does not like the gospel. They're not going to like the gospel. Now, most people don't have a problem that you love Jesus, and that you serve Jesus. They don't have a problem with that. Like that's, you know, that's between you. What they have a problem with is the fact that you think that they should love Jesus too. That's when the cross becomes a stumbling block sometimes um, in, in our relationships. You see, and most religions say, I obey. Right? I obey, therefore I am accepted. If I do this, then I can be accepted. But the unique thing about Christianity is, Christianity says, I am accepted... Therefore, I obey. You see the difference in that? I obey. In other words, there's something that I have to do. My good and bad and imbalance and all this stuff is weighed out against me and these other religions, and that's going to determine if I'm good enough. And the thing that's unique about Christianity is God says, you're not good enough, but I love you enough to provide a way out. And because I accept you then, and because of that grace that's accepted in our life, then we want to be obedient and to follow what Jesus says. The fourth thing that Paul does is Paul proclaimed Christ. In every single aspect, he uses this cultural relevance to bridge the gap, but he always brings it home to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. God commands everyone to repent. People are far from God, but they're hungry for him. They're asking questions today. Our society is asking questions. And we consistently create gods, and we live in this, this world that has become deeply full of idols, right? But not the idols that we see in, in old times. We're not building statues of gods that we worship. But we have these idols in our lives and things that we worship that we use in place of God and things that we, in these quests, that we're on. We have to join Jesus in his mission to seek and to save the lost. And I love that what Paul says at the end of that scripture in, in uh, Corinthians 9. Uh, he, he says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And he says he's become all things to all people that by all means Necessary, Whatever it takes to bring people to an understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel is, that's what Paul is saying. Like, that's what we're mandated to do. That's, our, that's the important thing that we have. That's who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that we don't take the gospel message and we make it fit the culture that we live in. That's a far different thing. We don't take God's word and we don't say, this has to now fit and mold and we wind up doing this with the word trying to shove it into a culture that says that it wants no standards right however it is our job to take this to the culture and use the culture as a bridge to bring people to understanding of who God is and what God wants to do in their lives everyone is asking these questions but it's our responsibility to understand how to deliver it to them. You know, it, it, in this country alone, the divisions between North and South and East Coast and West Coast, we, we talk different. We have, we have different phraseologies and verbiage that we use that mean totally different things, right? My, my wife grew up in Michigan, and everybody in Michigan that I know there, they, they say pop, Right? And it means, you know, a Coke. I'm from the South. Everything's a Coke. It doesn't matter what it is. It's an orange Coke, grape Coke, Dr. Pepper Coke, Sprite Coke. It's all Coke. All right? So, you know, it, but they say pop. Now, in the South, if you're a kid and your mom asks you if you want a pop, the answer is no. Because that means, especially if you're in church, that means your mother is going to very uh, eloquently pop your inner thigh with her hand and it doesn't feel great so your mom looks at you and says do you want to pop no now if you're in michigan and your mom says do you want to pop yes i do same english language same country 
totally different application of the same word in question. And we have to understand who we're talking to because we don't want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we don't want to take it to the south and ask people if they want to pop. Because there's differences in how we live and how we talk and what we, and what we say. You know, on the East Coast in Boston, they, everything is wicked. It's wicked cool. It's wicked bad weather. It's wicked this, you know. They use it. And wicked means something totally different everywhere else. But they use wicked as this crazy adjective that they put in front of things. Culture defies how we speak, how we think, and how we interpret things that are saying to us. And it's amazing how words and phraseologies change over time. And what's amazing is, is that a lot of times that we try to take some of the things that we see in here and we say, oh, it says this word and so that's what it means. And we take that word to mean what it culturally means to us the most in the time and season that we live in. Now, a prime example is the word cool, right? So if you lived in the 1800s and you said something was cool, you meant that it was cold. So if someone wrote something about, and so-and-so was very cool, today we would go, oh, he was a, he was, he was a hip guy. He was you know, someone that people liked. He was popular. But in reality, what they're saying is he was cool, which means he was probably cold, which means they were a person that wasn't very sociable. It's actually the opposite. But it depends on the interpretation with the culture that you read it. So today we would look at that person that maybe the writer is actually trying to warn us about their cold temperament and we look at it and go, oh, this person's great. Like, look at this. This is how... No, we have to understand the culture and the language and how all of this stuff affects what we're actually saying in the gospel that we're bringing to people. And the Bible says, like, that's our mandate. And we see this time and time and time again in the life of Paul as he began his missionary work that he would always bring it home to the gospel. The theme was the same. It was always the cross, and it was always about Jesus. But the way that he got there was very different. We see here in Acts 17 that Paul's talking to the, the Athenians, the, the people in Athens, But, you know, Paul also wrote two other letters to a church in Corinth. Does anybody know where Corinth is? It took a really long time in first service for us to get there. So let's see who knows their geography. Corinth is in Greece. Much faster. Greece. Athens is in, I'll give you a hint, we just said it. Greece. Same country. They're not even really that far apart. But Athens culture and the culture in Corinth were two Completely different things, the way the people thought, especially in their religion at this time. So we see Paul writes two separate letters to the church in Corinth. But he also writes a, church, a letter to the church at Philippi. And he also writes a letter, two letters to the church in Colossia, right? And he also writes a, a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he also writes a, a letter to the church in Rome. And every single one of those letters, the central theme is the same. How do we live out the gospel and how do we present the gospel? But the ways that Paul gets there each time is different. And if he didn't need that, he only had to write one letter. You know, if if Paul lived now, it would be, you know, control C, control V. Copy and paste and send it out. But guess what? He couldn't do that. Why? Because Roman culture was very different than the Athenian culture. And the culture in Ephesus was different. So the things that they were dealing with and the situations that they found themselves having to to counteract as the church, each one was different and each one required a different strategy to bridge the gaps of culture. So what does that have to do with us today? We live in a culture that's very contradictory to what our Bible proclaims, at least on the surface it is, right? But people are all asking the same questions. Why are we here? What does all this mean? What does life look like? And people are tired of the questions and people want answers. The problem is we have the answers. The thing is, is are we willing to stop preaching at culture and start preaching to people's lives? With, as it said, with respect, generosity, and grace. Because that's who we've been called to be. We don't compromise 
on the things that we need to contend for in the gospel. Like Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. He said, no man except through me. That's something that we have to contend with. That's something that we have to fight for. That's a place in the Bible that we say Jesus is the only way and we believe that because he says so. So we contend where we need to contend and we contextualize when we need to contextualize to make that bridge between Jesus and the gospel and culture happen. And our culture here and our community is different. We have a different culture than, say, Chicago. And everyone said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? But Chicago, we're in the same state. It's two hours to start to get into the suburbs of Chicago. But guess what? The mentality, the way people reference things and the viewpoints and the way people see things is completely different. And it's not even that far. But we're miles apart in our culture. So how do we take this uncompromising word and we apply it to the culture and to the needs that we have first here? We have to be willing to bridge the gaps that exist and bring people back and forth from that bridge, from culture back to Jesus. And then take those people back across the bridge to culture. Because remember, our holiness is not us being separated from people. We have a divine mandate that it is our job to reach this city and to help transform people's lives, not because we want to win. It's because it's what God's told us to do. God has called us. And if you believe that God has indeed saved you and set you apart and changed you, why wouldn't you want to share that with everyone that you come in contact with? That my life is different now because I have, what was that word that we were trying to remember a minute ago? Hope right? We have that hope that lives within us, and we do have that hope, so we have to be willing to start to bridge that gap between here and here. That's what our mandate is to do. And then we have to branch out. We have to be willing to cross that river and go into Peoria, and we have to be willing to go south and we have to be going to, willing to go east and west and to continue to spread the good news. But every time we change locations, guess what's going to happen? The culture will change too. And the culture says this and the culture says that. But we must be willing to do, and I love that phraseology, whatever, or as Paul said, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. And this really has to be what, we, what do we take away from the day? What do we take away from this whole month as far as vision? Is that we have this mandate that we are supposed to love people. That we have to embrace the community around us. And that means understanding the culture. Understanding the undertones. Understanding where people's lives are at. And that's going to even change depending on where you're at in town. Right? The circumstances and the posture of people's lives are going to be in different places. And, but first, we have to understand the questions they are asking. And we have to understand what their needs are. And then we take that need and we relate it back to the gospel and to a word full of promise that says, I, God, will meet your needs according to his riches and glory. And that's not to say that everybody's going to be prosperous, right? It just means that God will meet our need. But we first... Have to build that bridge to communicate what God wants from us. We have to adopt, adapt, but also reject. To contend for faith and contextualize where we need to contextualize. Because we have this mandate that we've been called to reach this city. And what we need to walk away from is by what ever means necessary and that means that within that whatever question that we still have to take that whatever and we have to contend it with what God's word says you know I saw I saw a, a, a book that's come out by some some lady who's a family pastor at some church um, here in the states I don't remember 
where she's at. But she's written a new book, and she's a family life and single pastor. And she's written this book that talks about how our, 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 our morality and the things that we've, we preach in Scripture, that's not really what the Word says. And it's really okay for Christian single people to engage in premarital sex like as much as they want, as much as that, and with as many partners and, and whatever, as long as they feel okay with what's happening, that it's okay. Because we're, we're trying to contextualize everything in the book so that we don't offend people and people can still live where they are. And I'm telling you that this morning, if you're sitting in here and you're still living where you were, you haven't encountered the gospel. You haven't really encountered Jesus Christ because the life that Jesus Christ calls us to forces us to change who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that we get legalistic and it's about a list of do's and don'ts because that's not Bible either. But what it means is, is that means that our heart and our posture is completely changed because we have relationship now with Jesus Christ. That's what that means. And that's what we have to do in order to reach people is we don't take and we let society and we don't let culture dictate what God's word is. We use God's word to engage the culture. We adopt, adapt, and reject where it needs to be. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for, for, for who you are and for what you're doing. God, we thank you for this, this month that we spent just looking at, at what you want for us, what, what you need from us, and what you're doing and how you're moving in our, in our midst. And God, we pray this morning, Lord, that we would be all that you've called us to be. God, that we would be all things to all people, Lord, that we would learn to bridge these gaps appropriately, contextualizing what needs to be contextualized, but also, Lord, that we have to contend for what is truth. We have, to, we have to contend for what is absolute. And God, we ask that you would give us that passion for the lost. God, that passion to, to see our neighbors and our, and, our, and our friends and our co-workers, that we would see their lives change. They would become all that you've created them to be. God, that's what you called us to, is to release people through your word into who you created them to be. And God, this morning, that's the church that we want to be. God, we want to be a whatever it takes. Whatever you need us to do, how do we bridge that gap, Lord? But also, help us be a church that releases people to be who you created them to be. Each of us unique and special. And your word says that you have plans specific plans for each and every one of us. And God, this morning we ask that you would give us a passion, Lord, for the lost. But a passion to know who you are. A passion for you this morning. That our prayer. God, that you would give us a, a passion, Lord, for our community, that would give us a passion for the lost. This morning, as, as we, we, we conclude four weeks of talking about community and people and loving people and seeing our community change and seeing our community reach, it, they're all words. They're all words if we don't do the next step in that, and that's to begin to step out in faith, to begin to move and to begin to do what God is instructing us to do. If we just sit and go, oh, that was great, that was nice, I like the way that was put together. But we fail to move, then we don't actually accomplish anything for God. And it's just idle words that we've spoken and that we've heard. But the thing is, is that we have to be willing to step out in faith and say, God, this is where you're calling us to. This is who you're calling us to be. And God, I, I am here. Lord, use me. You created me unique and you created me with giftings, Lord. How can I fit into what you're doing? How do I help change my neighborhood? How do I help change my workplace? 
God, what do you need from me? How can I be a part of what you're doing? And we all have to be willing to ask that question, but then also to step out into action based on what God is calling us to. We can't say that we love our community if we don't really embrace them. And we don't really try to meet those needs. We can't say that we have to love people and then we go home and we shun people that we don't like that are close by to us. We can't just say things that are convenient and sound nice inside the cozy confines of our church. We have to be willing to take the message that we proclaim in here and get it outside of these walls, outside of this parking lot, and begin to get it into our community. And it starts with you doing what God has called you to do and being who God has called you to be. To be an example in the workplace, to be an example in the business community. To be a person that exemplifies that hope that we say that we have. And this morning as we end this four-week series on what God wants us to be, I believe that everybody in here would say, yes, I want to do that. Yeah, I want to. Man, that sounds great. And that's awesome, but it's, we have to take it one step further than that. We have to be willing to act and be willing to step out in faith and surrender our time to God. Surrender our finances to God. To surrender our lives truly to God like we talked about that first week. That all aspects in our life that we trust God with it. And we trust God with the passions and the abilities and the giftings that he's given to you. Like, oh, I just do this. That's okay. Be the best whatever that is that you can be. If you're coaching T-ball or little kids, be the best coach that you can be. Be the best life coach that you can be to those kids while you have them on the field. If you're a kid's hope mentor, be all that you can be to those kids. Be the best neighbor that you can be. Be the best boss that you can be. Be the best whatever that you can be that you touch for God, but you have to be willing this morning to step out in faith and to say, God, I'm here. Use me. And so I'd ask this morning, just as a show to to, to God, and the Bible says that we have to step out as the children of Israel were called to step out when God was going to do something miraculous. We have to be willing to, to show. And this morning I ask if that's you and you're like, God, I'm willing. I will be a do whatever it takes kind of person. You can count on me in your kingdom. I want to see us change this city. And what I want you to do is everybody not looking around just between you and God. I want you to just lift your hand up and say, God, I'm here. God, use me. Whatever you want me to do, I'm here. This is, this is between you and God, not between me and you. Because you're going to be accountable for the, the giftings and the abilities and the passions that he's placed within you. And so this morning, God, all, all across this building, Lord, his hands are raised. God, we say, we are here, Lord. Use us. God, however we can, we can be a part of what you're doing in this city, in this community, in the state, Lord, in our country. God, give us the ability this morning to be everything that you've called and you've created us to be. God is new ministries and, and, and groups and support places and, and, and things are created this morning in the hearts and lives of these people, Lord, to meet the needs of this community. God, I pray that not only would you bless them, Lord, but I pray, Lord, that you would do exceedingly abundantly in each and every heart and each and every life, God, because you alone are worthy. And God, we thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of what you're doing in this place season and in this time and we're careful to give you all the praise and all the glory that's due unto your name and we all said amen